0: All right, so in 1790, the United States of America conducted its first national census. All right, and it was, it was a man by the name of, well, actually, let me say it this way, Secretary of State at the time, a guy by the name of Thomas Jefferson, wanted to find out how many people lived in the U.S. So he sent a group of people out to kind of scour the known areas of the country. They actually sent out the U.S. Marshals were the ones who did that first census. And they sent them out to find out how many people we had. And the final tally was 3,929,214 people, which seems pretty crazy because our population today as a country is around 330 million. So obviously we've grown quite a bit since then. We actually have 15 different metro cities today in the U.S. with populations greater than 3.9 million. So we're obviously growing quite a bit, um, and that, but that was a number. And then back in 1970, um, they actually put in a rule called the 72-year rule where you could not access information from any census for 72 years. I guess it was privacy reasons because they take a lot of personal information as, you're doing, as they're doing a census, but you couldn't access that information for 72 years. So in 19, the 1940 information was actually just released in 2012. So if you search, do any searches for your family, anything like that, probably the, the latest information you're going to find is 1940. And they said in 2012, when they released that information to the general public, people were so ready to get their hands on it, they actually crashed the servers of the National Census Bureau as they were trying to get their hands on that info. Um, and I went, and actually, because, you know, I, believe it or not, I don't know much about a census, but since we were going to study it today, I did some study. Um, this is actually, so I was Googling around the 1940 census. I just started putting in random family members' names and actually found my grandmother and the information of the person who went to their house. Her maiden name was Phelan, so it's there on the bottom. You see John Phelan was her father. Bernice was her mother. My grandmother was Audine. She was 15 at the time, her sister Arlene, and then John Jr. was one. And it was interesting because you could follow the data, the kind of the columns all the way over, and it shows where they lived, it shows what they did for a living, they did farming, it shows how much money they made, which I thought was a little weird, but you know, it, one of the reasons you take a census is for income tax purposes, at least historically that's been one of the, the reasons you take it, you want to find out who's not paying their taxes. So they would just keep track of what people were paying. Um, the first census that was ever recorded was done by the Babylonians, 3,800 years ago. At least that's what the record said. Um, and here's what they counted: people, livestock, butter, honey, milk, wool, and vegetables. That's what they wanted to know what they had. So I say all that just to say today, as we jump into Second Samuel, we're going we're to find out about a census. All right? This is the final chapter of First and Second Samuel. Believe it or not, we have been studying these two books together for the past forty-five weeks. Does it feel like that? Forty-five weeks. Um, somebody said in the first service—that's probably why Jake said it—we need a diploma for all going through First and Second Samuel. I don't know what that will say on it, but Jake will have diplomas for you next week. Um, and you know, the funny thing is, if I was going to end a book that is is really transitional in the history of the Israelites, I probably would have ended it very differently which is probably why I'm not in charge, but it's, you know, I I would expect to be left, you know, on some high note, you know, riding high off into the sunset, but that is absolutely not what we're going to get in this final chapter. All right. It actually wraps up with another one of David's sins, a census of all things. And, you know, while a census may seem completely harmless, you know, if you think about a census, you think about what they're doing, what they're actually gathering. I mean, it really seems kind of completely harmless. But David decides to use that census in more of a prideful sense. He's using it as a way to find out what he has. He's using it as a way to find out what he's in charge of, what his, what his rule is. But the, the other thing I like about the passage is that he recognizes it and he repents. And that's one of the things I've loved about this study. One of the things I've loved about David is when he, when he finds out what he does, when the Lord brings it to his attention and he recognizes his sin, he repents. And I think there's, there's something very important about that, because I think so often, at least for me, there, there's repentance at salvation, where you place your faith in Christ, you say, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for my sins, I know what I've done, you're, you're putting your faith in Him, and then so often, there's not a lot of repentance ongoing in our lives. And that ongoing repentance isn't for salvation, it's just for growth, it's for that relationship with the Lord, it keeps that relationship where it needs to be. So that's what we're going to see today, we're going to see David step into some sin, we're going to see him repent. And then the book ends in a really interesting note, and I won't give it away. So 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, let's go. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So the chapter opens with, we're not going to stop halfway through every verse, I promise. But the chapter opens with this really interesting phrase. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And anytime you see a passage open with the word again, it's important to figure out the other instance it's referring to. Because in a lot of cases, it'll shed some light on what you're studying. Maybe there are some similarities there, but the author started it with the word again for a reason, all right? And now we we probably don't know exactly what he was referring to. Um, Most scholars believe it's a carryover from chapter 21. And chapter 21 is where the Lord is dealing with Saul's sin on the giving night. Remember that? Where the seven men hang for the, when Saul attacked the Gibeonites. And so most scholars believe that's, that's what it's referring to. And this is also the chapter where uh, they defeat all of Goliath's brothers and uncles and nephews. And remember, there was giant after giant after giant after giant. So you have two individual stories. One is where Saul, they're dealing with the Gibeonites. And the other one is where they beat the giants. All right, so um, here in chapter 24, Israel is very strong. As you come into this passage, we don't know exactly when this story took place. Chapter 21, 22, 23, 24 are kind of like a prologue. But, so we really don't know when these individual stories take place, but we can see, you know, as you study through this prologue, you're seeing a lot of important things like them beating the giants. That story was there because it was almost impossible. Everybody feared the giants. I mean, you remember back when David was fighting Goliath in 1 Samuel 17? I mean, they were out there having a stalemate for 40 days. Nobody wanted to touch the giant. Everybody was scared to death. And then when you study a few chapters ago, they beat giant, and then they beat another giant, and then they beat another giant, and then they beat another giant. Like it's giving you some insight as to where Israel is at this point in their history. They are probably the strongest they've ever been. They are a big country, they're a powerful country, their territories have been ex- expanded to kind of the, the far reaches of the known world. And under Saul, they were, you know, they were relatively small and now under David, they're, they're huge. They become a world superpower under David. So that's, that's really where we are here at the last chapter. And when I'm studying this, I wanna know, okay, why is the Lord's anger? Like, why is the Lord angry at the Israelites. Like, I really want to know why he's angry. And I think we're going to see through the rest of the chapter that he's probably angry for their reliance on their own self and their own strength. Like, you can think about it. They are powerful. They've got a lot of weapons. They've got a lot of territory. They've got a lot of riches. They've got a lot of goods. They've got a lot of things going for them. And God has always warned over the whole history of Israel, if you get to that point, your tendency is going to be to forget me. Your tendency is going to be to look to other things in your life. And so I, I think they're beginning to put their own trust in them. And I think we've all been there, right? You're praying for something fervently, praying for it over and over and over and over. And I think money is probably a good example because I think we probably have all been there at some point in our lives. So let's just assume you're, you're praying for money and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying, and, you're praying and the Lord provides. And he provides more than you ever thought he would provide. And after a while, you, you kind of lose that trust in him. When you were on your knees praying for that provision, you trusted him with everything you had. Am I right? Lord, I need this. I need you to provide. If you provide, I'll do whatever you want. mean, we've all been there. You make these promises. And Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this week. And so he provides. And then he provides. And then he provides. And all of a sudden, you're like this kind of feels good, right? It's, I like the security of him providing, but then our tendency, our human tendency is to take your eyes off of him. Right, I don't need to pray for this provision any longer because it's here. I'm going to kind of put my eyes on myself. And that's what I think we see here in the Israelites. They have been you know, praying for this, praying for this, and bigger and bigger, and pride starts to creep in. Right? Look, at, look at all the stuff we got. Look at all the things God has provided. I don't know that we need to trust them as much. So it's very possible, while we don't know, that the Lord is angry with them for that reason. And I think we see that through the census. So verse 1, again, the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So he's angry. And he says, go go number Israel and Judah. And I think it's a very odd request. Like if I'm angry with somebody and I'm God, I don't know that a census is what I'm looking for, right? There might be some hail involved. There might be some fire involved. There might be some brimstone involved, but he's angry. His anger is kindled. Go count Israel and Judah. Like that, that's literally what he says. It's a census, a good old fashioned count how many people you got census, I mean, why would you not just directly deal with whatever the issue is? Why would you not smite them or do whatever it is you were going to do, but instead he does a census? And what I think, I think the Lord sees something in the heart of David that he wants to deal with. Something about what is happening with David. Maybe it's the size of his empire. Maybe it's the size of, you know, how powerful he has become. But something needs to be dealt with, and it's almost like a test. Like David... I'm going to deal with the Israelites. I assure you of that. I'm frustrated with them. I'm angry at them. I'm going to deal with them. But I would like to see if something is going on in your life before we do that. So I want you to go out. I want you to count all the people we have. And I want to know throughout that process do you trust in your wealth? Do you trust in your numbers? Do you trust in your army? Do you trust in your people? Or do you trust in me? You think there's a lesson in there for us? Do you trust in all the provision that I have given you or do you trust in me? Because provision can vary. Something God has given you for good, something he has given you to further the kingdom, something he has given you for his own reasons can very easily become something that you use for your own gain, your own good. I'm not saying you can't have fun. I'm not saying you can't buy things. I'm just saying it's very easy to put your trust in provision as opposed to putting your trust in God. Because the census in and of itself is not wrong. There's nothing wrong about a census. We see the very first census in Exodus 30, verse 11. That's when we see the first census. The Israelites had just finished building the tabernacle, and God looks at them and says, I want you to do a census. Verse 30, the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel— Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one is numbered in the census Shall give this a half shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. So God tells them to do a census. The book of Numbers actually gets its name from a census. That's why it's called Numbers. There's two different censuses in the book of Numbers, and that's why it's named Numbers. So obviously God's not going to name the book of the Bible for something that shouldn't happen. Right? So a census in and of itself is fine. On the surface, you know, that's that's what they're okay. It's okay to do that. But here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see a picture as we keep going of David's true motives. Verse two. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. That's our, that's our first little sign of David's heart, that I may know the number of the people. Not because God asks, not because God wants to know, not because God wants to know how many people we have, but because I want to know. And then verse three gives us even more info. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? So, Joab, if you, if you think back to Joab, he's been quite the character. He's done a lot of things, he's killed people. Like, I wouldn't really look to, to Joab as maybe the, the, moral, the moral threshold of what we should all attain to. However, even Joab looks at David and Joab says, Why do you want to do this? Like, Joab sees where he's going. Why, why do you delight in doing this? Like, it's one thing just to count the people, but I, I really know why you want to do it. So why does the king delight in this? And that word delight is extremely important to the story because it's like, you see that David's desire for a census doesn't come because he wants to take care of the people. Doesn't come because he wants to serve the people. It's not a desire to give God glory for all the people he has. Oh Lord, look at all the people that you've given us. I just I want to worship you today for that. His delight is in the size of his army. That, that's what he's doing. You're going to see that later because that's who he counts. He counts the army, all right? And, and here's why it's such a big deal in the Lord's eyes. Because God was the one who provided David with everything he had. Would you agree? All the victories he ever had came from the Lord. All the gold, all the silver he had accumulated came from the Lord. All the crops they had, they came from the Lord. All the livestock that they had, they came from the Lord. Now, I realize that David is a vessel in this, and a lot of times you look to the leader as thinking, okay, they're the ones that did all this, but it's extremely arrogant for David to think that he had anything to do with what the Lord was doing. Right? So, so the next census we have as a country is 2020. It's about, we take them about every 10 years. So assume that we do our 2020 census and the results come in, The information comes in and they gather, okay, all the income, all the jobs. um, You know, here's what's going on here. Here's the population here. And let's just assume that the president of the United States, I don't think it, you know, the way it falls, it'll be after the election. So whoever the president is, stands up to address the nation and says, look what I have done. Here are the census results. Here's how rich we are. Here's how big we've become. Here's how much income we're bringing in. Here's how our businesses are doing congratulate me for all that I have done. If the president of the United States stood up and said that we would all think he was crazy because it doesn't have anything like that. Doesn't really have anything to do with him. He may be a vessel that perhaps God is using to bring about these things, but we all know that it's a collection of things that are happening inside our country. And it's not necessarily the president of the United States that is providing all those. But that, that is the same as David, even though he's been in office a lot longer That is the same mindset as David thinking that he had anything to do with everything that was happening. God's like, I am the one that provided everything that you have. You may be our leader, but it's a little arrogant to think that you did all of this. And that's essentially why Joab is going after David and saying, don't do this. Like, why are you delighting in this? Verse four, but the king's word, so David's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Oar and from the city that is in the middle of the valley towards Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh and to the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan and from Dan, they went around to Sidon, came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah and Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land they came to Jerusalem at the end of 9 months and 20 days. So the census leaders they leave Jerusalem, they travel east, they go across the Jordan, they go over into the area of the Dead Sea, then they head north and they go up through Gad and Gilead to kind of the northernmost border of Israel at the time, then they went west, they went over to Tyre and Sidon, they came down to Beersheba and then they go into Jerusalem. And it says they took Over nine months to do the census. So roughly 300 days. And the author gives us 300 days for a very specific reason. Because that's 300 days that David was wondering how big his empire was. That's 300 days where he got on top of his palace roof, where lots of bad things happened. And he looks out over the horizon to see if he can see Joab and the soldiers coming back to give him that number. Like the anticipation, 300 days. Because at this point, we know he has still not asked forgiveness for us. He still might not even think he's done anything wrong. 300 days that he's anticipating what's going to happen. And here's the other side of the story. It's also 300 days the Lord gave him to repent. He knew what he was doing, I think, because Joab called him out on it. 300 days he had to repent. Also 300 days of walking in sin with no repercussions. Sometimes God's greatest judgment is simply letting us do whatever we want to do. Sometimes his greatest judgment is you thinking you've got away with something. And so you think it's good. You keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And a lot of times the Lord, I mean, that's sometimes just the worst way to do it because you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And the Lord's like, if you want to do that and you don't want to have a relationship with me and you don't repent and you know it's wrong and you don't want to do this. At some point, your free will, he's just going to let you do what you want to do. And it just leads down that slippery slope of getting further and further. 300 days David had to repent, recognize, deal with his sin, and he didn't. So finally, the men return and he's anxiously awaiting the number. Joab gave him the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. Verse nine, in Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah not, who drew the sword. The men of Judah were 500,000. It's so not a census of the people. It's a census of the military. Okay. So it's, it's kind of showing you again, a little, a little window into why this was wrong. Not that you couldn't count your military. But that's who David is counting. He's counting his military. How big have we gotten under my command? That's essentially what's happening. So they tell David the number, and here's the crazy thing: as we all know, when you're walking in sin or got away with sin or you think you got away with sin, sometimes as soon as that sin happens, you're like, oh, "What have I done?" You know what I mean? You're thinking about it. You're thinking about it. You're thinking about it. Thinking about it. You do it. Oh, why did I do that? Why did I do that again? right? And that, that the second he does it, he realizes it. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. This is mind-blowing to me. 300 days go by and he does nothing. And he hears the number. Pride probably balloons. He realizes what, he've done, what he's done and he repents. His heart struck him after he had numbered the people And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done, not just foolishly, very foolishly. He recognizes what he's done, and he repents. But the crazy thing is, here's the thing that I have been wrestling with all of this week and last week and the week before, and what kept me up last night till 11, and woke me up at 3.30, is like these... Literally, I've been wrestling with this passage. And I'd say out of the whole book of First and Second Samuel, is one of the toughest passages to study. And it's, it's for this reason right here. Because if you step back and you look at the passage and you think about the passage, these first 10 verses, it's almost like, I mean, David was clearly responsible for his actions, but you could argue that God gave him his desire on a silver platter. God sent him to do the census. Now, the census, God didn't sin. God didn't make him sin. God just sent him on the census. Now, again, David was clearly responsible. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is back in verse 1. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Like, if I was just reading this for the first time, I might think that God tempted David. And we know God doesn't do that. Scripture is very clear that God does not tempt. So, what in the world is happening? Like, well, what, are, what are we, what are we reading? And if you don't turn to the verse yet, all right, give me a second. Um, in First Chronicles 21, some of you are frantically turning there since I won't put it up there. But in First Chronicles 21, like Chronicles gives us a parallel account from Samuel all the way to the exiles. It starts with some, um, some lineage. And then it, it really, the, the, the subject of Chronicles starts with the life of David. So it kind of skips Saul. It keeps some of the, skips some of the earlier times. So if you read Chronicles, it's like basically all the way through the exile. So Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 21 is the parallel to this passage. It's telling you kind of the same story from a different vantage point. It was written many years later. So it's, it's written from a little different vantage point. Think of the Gospels, right? There's all these different authors. They're writing about the same thing, but they're giving you a little different viewpoint. So that's kind of what's happening here. But if you turn over to First Chronicles, here is the parallel account of the census, and here's what it says. Without further ado, you can turn it. Um, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number and basically verse for verse tick for tack it goes down exactly what Samuel says is what Chronicles says so on the one hand in Samuel God incited David to take a census Chronicles Satan incited David to take a census it's kept me up for a long time many different nights as i'm like i'm praying through this and studying through this so which is it is it god is it satan is it both and I think the answer is yes. Like that's, that's the, rea- here's the reality. The reality of life is that God is sovereign over everything in your life. He has the authority over everything that happens. Would you agree? He has the authority. over He could have stopped David at any point during those 300 days. Now, David may not have liked how he stopped him. But he could have intervened and stopped him, but he didn't. And it's, I, I look at it a lot like Job. Satan is only mentioned four times in the Old Testament by name. This is one. Job is another one. And if you look at the interaction with Job, you, you kind of get a, a front row seat into the throne room. And you actually see Satan going to God and saying, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I tempt him here? Can I do this? He only has faith in you because you've never had anything wrong. Hap- you know, You remember the conversation with Job. And that's, I think, very similar to what's happening today. God allowed Satan to tempt David and David gave in. Because again, the census in and of itself was not a sin. There are a lot of things in your life that aren't sin. God provides you with a lot of money. You get a lot of provision. That prayer, pray, 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 money, money, money. I I need to survive. I need to do life. All of a sudden he provides over and above what you were asking for. And all of a sudden Satan's like, you know how you could really use that money? Do you know what I mean? God is still in control of everything that's happening, but Satan's like, come on, let's do this. Let's, let's take it this way. Let's use that money that I know you're raising for this and you're trying to give to the church and trying to do this and trying to support a missionary. Let me show you something over here in the car lot. Like, let me, let me, let me show you something else to use the Lord's provision for his answer to prayer for. So I think in reality, second Samuel is correct. First Chronicles is correct. I mean, they're both accurate statements. Chronicles is looking at the scene from a different vantage point. Chronicles is looking at the scene from this, from really from Satan nudging and prodding and poking and saying, come on, let's do this. While the author of Samuel is looking at it from a different perspective. God told David to number the people, not a sin. But here's the important thing. God took David's failures... And use them for his purpose. And God can do the same for you. The reason I like to be so transparent up here is because I can see a thread in my life of all my screw-ups and all my drug use and all the stupid things I ever did. And I can see how God used it for his purpose. I'm not saying he liked it when I did that. I'm not saying he authorized it. I'm not saying he even had any part of it. But he can use it for his glory. He can use every single thing in your life for his glory. And the other thing I think just that it reminds me of in this passage is that I think Satan is much more involved in our lives than we think. Now, I'm not saying if you ran over a nail on the way here, that Satan put the nail on the road, All right. Sometimes we give him too much credit. But I think he is way more involved than you might think he is that I might think he is with the temptation, with the things God's given you, with the things God wants you to do, the way God wants you to bring him glory. And Satan's like, mm, let's not do that, let's do this. Did he really say that you couldn't do this? Did he really say you couldn't eat of the fruit? Did he re- I mean, it's just doubt, it's lies. It's all the thing that Satan's so good at doing. And that, that I think that, that picture of Satan wanting to incite David. So, so God wants him to do the census, call it a test. You know, James says there's trials and they grow your faith right? At the end of the test, you can either say, Lord, these are all your people. I had nothing to do with this. Or you can say, look at all the people I have, right? David can go one of two directions. It's either, Lord, these are all yours. Lord, look what I have done. David chose a different direction. God still uses it for his glory and his purposes. His original purpose was to bring, call it punishment or wrath on the Israelites, right? His anger was not kindled against David. His anger was kindled against the Israelites. But he uses David's screw up to bring wrath. And we're going to see that in a second. Verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. So he's like, Lord, I've sinned. The prophet Gad, the word of the Lord appeared to Gad. And he said, go say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said, basically pick your punishment. You got three options, all right? Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David, you want three years of famine, you want three months of enemy attack, or do you want three days of plague? Those are your choices. Really fun choices, right? He has no idea what to do. Basically, he just says, God, do not let me fall into the hands of my enemies. You pick, don't let me fall into the hands of my enemies. And David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, which was three days, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand, like picture this, when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So for three days, the angel of the Lord goes through Israel and strikes down 70,000 men. Can you imagine? I mean, sometimes we just read it and we're like, yep, 70,000. Let's keep going. This is a long time ago. Feel the pain of those people. It's like eerily reminiscent of the Passover. People, you know, the angel of the Lord going through the land of Egypt, killing the firstborn. And this is fathers. This is sons. This is granddad's. There's screaming, there's crying, there's pain, there's heartache all throughout Israel. And I think it's important, again, for us to keep in mind, you know, this all started, we kind of, I think of it as kind of a consequence for David's sin, which it is. But in reality, it all started back because God was angry with the Israelites, probably for their own pride, but we don't know that for certain. But he uses David's sin to accomplish his purpose. And it's a paradox that's almost impossible to wrap your head around. Like it's just, it's a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. But at the appointed time, the angel of the Lord came. It says to the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, the Lord said, it is enough. Stop. It's enough. And it seems like such an odd place. The threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Like what a random place to stop. All right, but... It stopped because a sacrifice was given. We're going to read the rest of the passage. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. So imagine David seeing all of this go down. He's seeing all of this go down. It says, when he saw the angel of the Lord striking the people, he said, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up to Gad, Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But listen to twenty four. It says, But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will I will buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor. And the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. And that's how Samuel ends. That's how the book of 2 Samuel ends, with a sacrifice that stops the wrath of God so what in the world as we close can we take from this passage you know i think first of all it's it's a great reminder to keep your eyes on god he is the only one whether we like it or not or like to think differently he's the only one that offers true security one of my grandfathers was a cattle trader and this was before credit cards and online payments and Venmo and all that stuff. So he used to carry around cash everywhere he went. And, you know, the last thing he wanted, as he explained it, was to go to a cattle auction or go to a farm. Maybe somebody had traveled from across the state with 100 head of steer that he wanted to buy. And he's like, the last thing I want to do is go to an auction and not have the cash with me. And I can't like, you know, no ATMs. This was back in the day. So he's like, I need to carry the cash. So he always carried at least a couple thousand dollars with him always. And I remember as a kid, I would just be in awe, right? He would pull out a wad that kind of looked like this. He would always carry something that looked very similar to this. Some of you probably do it anyway, but where's Bob Breeshawker? I assume he'll do. So he would sit here like this and he would literally, and he didn't do it to show off. I told you why he did it. He did it. So, but he would co- I'd come and he'd like sit down at the dinner table and he'd take out this wad. And I'd be like, I'd just be staring at me like, what is, oh, okay, here you go, son. This is fake money, by the way. <laughs> this is not the building fund. Um, <laughs> this is what my kids learn with. Maybe I should start giving them less as a better example, but um, this is just all fake money. But he would pull out this wad of cash, and he'd literally, you know, here you go, here you go, son. But all of growing up, I was like, if I could just have that wad of cash... How ignorant was I, right? If I could just have that couple thousand dollars, everything in life would be good. If I could just have that security. You know, you ever get like a, this might be some confession that's too much, but you ever get like a decent sized check? You go to the bank and you cash it. Just so you can, maybe this is just me left over from wanting to my granddad. I have gone to the bank. This is confession for the soul. Let's say it's pre-Jesus. I have gone to the bank. I have gone to the bank. It's probably not. I've gone to the bank, cashed a check that was pretty decent size. Decent is all relative, right? Pretty decent size. Cashed it just so I could... I'm, I'm not even kidding. I'm dead serious. Because there is something secure about having a lot of cash. Am I right? I mean, I know I'm not the only one. I've gotten... I've gotten checks from the IRS for tax returns, and I've had them direct deposited, and I would log into my account every few hours just to look at the number. It was like $800. Right? But I would log in just to look at the number. There, there is something secure about having cash in the bank. There's security in that. There's security in a steady job. Some of you, it's really secure to be in a relationship. That's maybe where security is. There's security in a roof over your head. And these are all gifts from the Lord, but we don't look to them for our security. We look to him for our security. And for David, security was in the number of soldiers. And I don't blame him. This whole thing started because they wanted a king back with Saul. Saul. All these nations around us, you're raising up these judges, they're crazy, half of them like Samson. All this started because they just said, look, we want a military, we want a king, we want somebody we can look to, we want to feel protected, we want to feel secure. That's how this whole thing started. Okay, I'll give you a king. I'm going to give you a king that's after your own heart first in Saul, and then he gives him a king that's after God's own heart, right? But it seems like David has come full circle. I want to find my security and soldiers, I can only imagine what it's like. Sam and Kristen, $47 in the ministry account. Was that the number? You don't find security in $47. You find security in the Lord. And look how he provided. Maybe not monetarily, but it's kingdom currency. Salvation. It's lives. People who are willing to give up everything to travel to the poorest county in the U.S. to serve the Lord. I remember Buff McNichol, when he left and went to Atlantic City, you know, I was talking about why he was going. We had actually prayed about going with him as well. And he was like, you know what? I want to do something that causes me to have faith. I feel like right now I'm not trusting the Lord enough. Everything's easy. Everything's this. Everything's that. You know, there's people. People are going to come to the ministry just because I work at a church that's really big. And, you know, that's what he said. He said, I want to go somewhere where I actually have to have faith. And he did. And he does. He does. And it's it's shown itself over and over so here's the deal if i th- here's what i think i think if the men had come back and david had said tell me the number he had lifted his hands to heaven everything would have been fine i think everything would have been fine so how how do we wrap up this passage if you read that last 45 weeks of study ends with one phrase. So the Lord responded, this is the last verse. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. You can almost imagine the plague coming over this dark cloud in the sky, probably coming over as it approaches Jerusalem. I'm thinking of like the Egyptian plagues. All right, here's what David says as we close. Here's like the, to me one of the most important phrases That David says. Verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David sees the angel striking down the people and he's heartbroken. Like he can't bear to see it. So he cries out and he offers himself. These are just sheep. I am the shepherd. Let your hand, what he says, let your hand fall on me and my family. Let me take the punishment for these sheep. And he offers a sacrifice instead. The Lord's like, offer a sacrifice. And he offers a sacrifice, and the Lord relents. On the threshing floor of Aruna of the Jebusite is where he offers that sacrifice. And it seems like such a weird spot. It says the plague stopped there. It says that's where David offered the sacrifice. And, you know, I'm trying to research, what is this Aruna spot? What is this threshing floor? But to every Jew who read this, they would have known exactly what that spot was. The threshing floor of Aruna was the exact place where Abraham had offered Isaac, his son, to the Lord. That, That was the spot. And God told him to take Isaac out to a place called Mount Moriah right? And they got there at the appointed place. And he says, he raised his hand to sacrifice his son. Literally, that's what it says. He raised his hand to sacrifice his son. And God says, stop. I have a substitute, ram, in the woods, in the thicket. Go take that substitute and you can sacrifice that instead. And now at the same spot, probably a thousand years later, God's hand is raised against his people. But again, he stops it. For a sacrifice, David offers a sacrifice and the wrath is stopped. And interest, interestingly, in 2 Chronicles 3, I don't have the verse, 2 Chronicles 3, we read that the f- threshing floor of Aruna was where Solomon would build the temple. That exact same spot is where Solomon would build the temple. That's, it would be a, kind of like a permanent place of sacrifice, a place where the people would atone for their sins on a regular basis. The problem is, that a sacrifice of animals doesn't take the place of sin. We know that from Hebrews. It's simply a picture of what was to come. So a thousand years later, we read about another census, right? This time in Rome, a Roman census. A man called Caesar Augustus wants to show the world how powerful he is, how big his army is, how important he is. But, but here's the deal. God uses the pride and sin of a Roman Caesar to accomplish his purpose, just like he did with David. So Mary and Joseph, they come into town where they're supposed to, they're supposed to give their information for the census, and they have a son who's in the line and lineage of David, and he would forever change the world. And here's the thing, as he begins his ministry, he grows up, he learns, he begins his ministry. Here's what he says in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He sees the judgment of God hanging over humanity over all of us, not just Israel. It's not just the cloud is not just coming over Israel. The cloud is coming over all of humanity. And God sees that. And Jesus is heartbroken. And he says, let your hand fall on me. I am the good shepherd. I will take the place of your sins. And he offers himself as a sacrifice. And so a thousand years later, a thousand years after David utters these words, and David says, I'm, you know, I'm the shepherd, these are the sheep, do something. Jesus would be crucified on a cross. And most commentators believe in the exact spot of the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, or at least nearby. It was Mount Moriah. And it's, it's mind-blowing to think that this time God's wrath was not withdrawn. There was no sacrifice in the thicket. There was no animal over here. It was Jesus was The sacrifice that every other sacrifice in the history of the world pointed to. There was no other purpose for any other sacrifice except to point to the one sacrificed Christ. Because all of those pointed to who Christ was. He died in all of our places to settle the wrath of God. Isaac was spared after a journey of three days. Jerusalem was spared after a plague of three days. And Christ rose from the grave after three days. And the judgment of God fell on Jesus and extinguished the life of Jesus. But three days later, the judgment was gone. And as we close this book of Samuel that we've been studying for 45 weeks, I want you to see that every single thing about the book points to Jesus from the contrast of of King Saul and King David and a God after the people's heart or or a king after God's own heart. And you see all of these things come together. It's no surprise that the very last words of the book, which seem very, very weird to us. But if you read the very last words of the book, it's just, it's very fitting that they say, so the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted, paused, waited, for the appropriate time, a thousand years later. As we close, J.D. Greer says, Jesus is the only king who, if we receive him, will satisfy us. And if we fail him, will die for us. This is our king and there is no one like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for First and Second Samuel. We thank you for passages that just hard to wrap our mind around, Lord, but the answer is you. And the answer is always you. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for just this study in First and Second Samuel. Thank you for the fact that we have a church that doesn't mind when we run long, even if they're hungry. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing in Creekside Church. Lord, I pray that we would stay in step with you everywhere we go. Lord, I thank you for Sam and Kristen and just the the ministry that they have. I thank you for allowing us to hear about that. Pray that people would go tonight to hear more. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.